0: hello and welcome to politics war room with james carville and i'm al Hunt. this week our guest is a senior fellow at the institute of global affairs at the london school of economics and a great journalist soviet-born peter pomerantsev and remember we love taking your questions so write into politics war room at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Chili Sleep, Smith AI, and HelloFresh in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. And please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Peter Pomerantzoff, born in Kyiv, an author, journalist, expert on disinformation. Uh, we appreciate you joining us, Peter. Uh, you're you're, you're going to be a great guest. There's so much to talk about. But let's just start with President Zelensky's remarkable address to a joint session of Congress. His tone, the history, citing Pearl Harbor, 9-11, I Have a Dream, uh, that, that compelling video uh, of the beauty and the brutality in the country where you were born, How did it strike you? And did you get a chance to see Biden's response?
1: So I have to be honest, I was teaching today. And so I watched the video just because everybody was sharing it. But I haven't sat down and sort of deconstructed it bit by bit. But generally, I mean, Zelensky has had a a remarkably good war as a communicator. Um, And um, I'm very interested to know afterwards who's helping him write the speeches because they seem very well calibrated to different audiences. Um, he has a great speech writing team anyway. It's the one thing that he was always very good at is speeches internally were always very good. Um, but I'm just interested, like, you know, how he's calibrating specifically for these audiences now, these international ones.
0: But even with good speech writers though, are, are you a little surprised or did you have a sense before that 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 he could rise to this occasion? I mean, th- this is, I don't know, Churchillian is obviously, you know, a, a little bit of a reach maybe, but it's been pretty damn impressive.
1: Um, I think like many people, I I, I wasn't sure. He he was not a perfect prime minister in in any way, but his gift has always been communication. Right. But um, somebody, a a senior Ukrainian-American academic who knows him a little bit, because I've never met him, mentioned this a little bit before the war, that you don't understand this man. He's been looking for the role of his life, his whole life, and this is the role of his life. And that's not a criticism. But, like, no. actually, he sees his own destiny in this. And and he's... Again, the word playing is the wrong word because that denotes fake. I'm not saying he's fake. I'm just saying this is what he feels he was, like, the role that he was destined to play and he knows how to play it. Strategic reforms of the economy and the judiciary were not his cup of tea, frankly, and, and one that we could ask many questions about. This sort of thing... I mean, talk about come, come the moment, come the man. And... um and, but the, but that, that's his communication capabilities. But the fact that he's... He, you know, there's something deeper going on. You know, great leaders feel a connection to the nation. Now, that can be really creepy, as in, like, you know, Hitler saying, ich bin das Volk, I am the nation. And yeah. Putin claims something like that. That's very creepy. But the gift of great leaders is to tap into the nation's mood. What Zelensky has always argued is that because he's a bottom-up celebrity, he has gone around every village in Ukraine doing comedy shows in the local town hall. His claim has always been, I don't need your sociology. I know Ukrainians. I I know them because I know what makes them laugh. I know what makes a 7 p.m. show work, which is the best sociology in the world. And I have physically been to all these places and communicated with people. That's why he managed to unite the nation when he won a seventy percent landslide, crossing every divide in the nation, and he's doing it now again. So you know, I think I think he actually genuinely feels that he he kind of gets the nation, he can channel it, and um, my God, he's right. Yeah, you 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 also
0: uh, know Ukraine, and you've written about being in touch with some friends who are there. What is your sense of how they are? Can they hold out?
1: Oh, I mean, look, I'm having many sleepless nights um, and I feel very on edge when I call my friends in Ukraine, some of whom have picked up weapons and are in Kharkiv, which is one of the cities under siege, many of whom are journalists going from city to city and others who might be in the government, but have ended up doing stuff they never thought they'd be doing. Um, they're full of a, a, a really grim resolve, horrified by what the Russians are doing, but with a real sense of purpose and, and togetherness that, um, frankly, you know, helps me deal with things. I'm much more flappy than they are.
0: Yeah. Well, boy, they, they sure have courage. Uh, Peter, before I turn it over to James, you also lived in Moscow for, uh, I think, almost a decade, You've written books and done television documentaries. What, what, Looking at Putin today, what do you see as his state of mind and where that might lead him?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I can really do the kind of like, you know, we can analyze his language and what his language is saying and revealing, because the language reveals more than maybe he understands.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we can analyze um, his aims or try to. His state of mind, I mean, I don't think he's become a suicide bomber. I don't think he's suicidal. I don't think he's, he's looking to do anything that will usurp his role. In his, in his logic and in his calculations, you know, he wants to achieve something that he thinks is great and important and satisfying. But like many like many aging leaders, he's lost his touch. He's not looking at the evidence. He's closed himself up, so he's miscalculating a lot. Um, but I don't buy this thing that he's gone mad. If by mad, we mean he's looking for self-destruction, he's ready to, to blow the world up. He's the same Putin that we always had, who was always very calculating? It's just he's got become really bad at calculating, like an old chess player who gets really bad at chess and starts messing up his moves. That's where we're at. James Carvel. So, so, Peter, I'm gonna get right to the crux of the matter here.
2: You're a scholar of propaganda, I'm a purveyor of propaganda. I think we need to have a huge propaganda campaign within Russia itself. And what we should set up we should you know if they engaged they were part of the global war we have they have iPhones they have you know cancel visa accounts what could we come up with that would in a propaganda war in russia that could bring putin some grief because i don't think we're very good at this you know we were very good at it in world war 1 we had the committee on public information george creel we were very good at it in World War II. Our, George Stevens' dad was encamped, and John Ford, and all these directors were encamped in the White House. Do we have a good propaganda effort going on in Russia, and what can we do to have a better one?
1: So, um, firstly, in World War II, the American efforts were, were not very good compared to the British ones. I'm writing a book about the British political warfare executive, so we can get into that debate if we like. Right. But, um, um, but you know, okay. that's, that's well, we sort try. of... We like, try. Okay, we try. But, But... I think the Cold War and the U.S. Information Agency is a much more relevant example and much more recent. Okay. But um, let's let's first break down this term propaganda. So in Eastern Europe, the word propaganda is not negative. It's just mass persuasion. Right. In the West, we have a lot of problems with it. Okay. Um, I definitely think we need an organized, strategic, democratic communication campaign towards Rus- the Russian people. Right. Um, I don't think it needs to be based on Deception or disinformation. I think it can deal with with honest engagement. Um, I don't rule out the role of psyops, the military, or the secret services, but they do what they do, and usually it's a bloody mess. But I'm talking about the sort of you know the stuff that we did in the Cold War, which was very transparent and and above board. The the sort of the 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 sort of black propaganda stuff in the Cold War usually blew up in our faces, frankly. So so we're not talking about something sort of like dastardly we're talking about engaging the Russian people about you know their future and our future and life and death and the thing is we we don't really have a coherent institutional basis for that our theory of change when it comes to communication and boosting democratic communication is kind of from the 1990s we sprinkle a bit around for here's some media development money Bye-bye. Here's something for USAGM, which is sort of the the journalism that the Congress supports in places like Russia. Go off and do your own thing. Here's public diplomacy, but we don't remember how to do it. Here's some audience analysis happening with some sociology professors. None of it is connected. Here's a bit of OSINT monitoring that somebody else is doing, maybe in the CIA, but why isn't it public? So we have all these bits and bobs. None of them come together. And then there's the really important bit, which you just mentioned, the technology factor. So firstly, when you think about institutional coordination, how do we bring these bits together so they actually have some sort of strategic impact? That's the first thing. The second thing, what is, you know, what are the aims, the values and and the strategies? Um, You know, and we should get into a a conversation about that. Let's get the ball rolling. Um, You just noticed, you just talked about the tech aspect. So the Ukrainian minister for digital, young guy, the sort of guy that you'd easily see hanging out in Silicon Valley, very much that kind of personality from the tech sector. Um, He tweeted the other day, Google and Apple have this incredible power to communicate directly with Russians because everybody has Android and Apple phones. Why can't they, you know, download information about uh, what's going on in Ukraine directly to Russians? And first I was like, that's crazy. And then I was like, no, it's not crazy at all. What it means, though, is the tech companies stopping claiming that they live in some sort of like nebulous reality beyond politics, but actually taking a stand in the fight between truth and lies and between democracy and dictatorship and between evidence and war crimes. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking to, we're not telling them to take a stand between America and Russia. We're we're talking about war crimes being committed and information about that not being shared with the population of the country in whose name they are being committed. So, you know, I think he's, he's saying a very, very important thing. And maybe that's one of the big, big topics to think about. Is it time for Apple, for Google to take a stance in that fight between truth and lies and between humanitarian justice and, and war crimes?
2: It's past time, okay? We can, let's call it a public information campaign because propaganda has a, a, a bad connotation. Whatever it is. You know, Visa and MasterCard, they don't accept anymore. They got the names of all of these Russians that were paying them bills. You can send them stuff. There's stuff that you can do to undermine this. You can tell the Russians that they're in danger of becoming vassals of the Chinese, which will scare the shit out of them, Right? All right. That, that that we're begging, to, you know, Russia's begging China for help. You need to know this. I, I mean, it, and the tech companies. I mean, honestly, fuck them. We train their engineers. They here. They profit off our tax code. They use our infrastructure. It's it, you're, you're, you're a U.S. based company, and a lot, most of your business is done in the West. Pass laws. We don't have time to screw with you. I mean, I, I think I'm I'm, I'm very. It, you you be, feel free to walk me back, but I'm very hard ass on this stuff, and we gotta we, we gotta go really hard, and we gotta go really hard internally in Russia.
1: I think generally, I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask about you know tech, the role of technology and and the role of business um, in 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 where we see the future of the world. I mean, clearly we're seeing the emergence of a cabal of dictatorships who want to make the world safe for dictatorship. And they're not allies in the classic sense, but they're increasingly coordinated and they're increasingly determined. And the theory of change was, if we had business with them, if we had technological exchange with them, we'd have a happy, more democratic world. That theory of change is dead, clearly dead. If anything, it's the opposite. So that does mean that business... And tech companies have to take a position. Now, I don't think, you know, what is the we that we're referencing? I think it has to be a a position based in human rights and humanitarian law and humanitarian values rather than just the whim of the U.S. government. Because, frankly, the next president that we have in the the U.S. might also not be particularly inclined to facts, evidence uh, and and confronting war crimes, let's be honest. So, so they have to be, I think, in a, in a slightly different uh, uh, value set. But it does mean taking a stand on these things. And clearly that's something that, that really hasn't happened. Um, but let's get back to what the US government should be doing, um, because that's something that, that, you know, maybe we can get more traction on and, and quicker. I mean, what do you think, James? I hear a lot of discussion in DC. I'm new to DC. I only came here six months ago, and I'm still trying to work this strange city out. Um, do we need... A more coordinated, you know, dem- democratic communications infrastructure, uh, a USAID for democratic communications or something? Uh, it, of course we do. And of course I was
2: wrong. A lot of people were wrong that if we engage them and if we, no, no, two countries that trade with each other and never go to war, a lot of us bought into that shit. All right? We just did. But let's just be honest here. The whole Washington consensus. On the world was just fucking wrong, all right? But now we know that. But as we used to say, it's now's not the time to look back, but to look forward. all right? We need to go after them. And, in and in, of course, the democratic message in the United States is constipated. It's always been constipated. I don't think there's enough Xlax in the world to deconstipate democratic message in the United States. But I do think that we can put together and push for a huge public information campaign inside of Russia. And inside of, you know, that that Western Europe has been, and it was also part of, well, the Western Europeans, they're just secular, they're weak, they can't get together. Shit, the big hero in this whole thing, other than Zelensky, is the European street. These politicians weren't going to move, and they saw 150,000 people in a tear garden, and they went, oh, shit, I didn't know this. I mean, the Finns, the Swedes, the Swiss, all right? I, I, I just think we need a massive public information campaign that, that's directed in a lot of different places. That's what I really believe.
1: Well, let's focus on Russia for now, because that's, that's really where this is all about. I mean, at the end of the day, this situation doesn't fundamentally change until there is a real change of public opinion in Russia, sentiment in Russia, and and the direction that the regime go, is going in, uh, in terms of in terms of you know understanding how far it can take its own nation down the route of a murderous and and horrific war. Um, so, what would be so one bit of that is the technology bit. Putin is like you know closing down. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube's about to stop. Trying to do anything on Russian social media is really hard. Uh, You can't just go up and buy ads or something. So there's a technology piece. So are you talking about using, investing in satellites, Uh, satellite TV, and shortwave radio? Are we going full Cold War? That's a technology piece. But then there's the, you know, technology you can always do something with in this day and age. But then there's the much, much, much more difficult bits. Which is the how do you actually engage? I mean, we know there's 13, 15 percent of people who are really anti-war. You know, they're clearly going to be ready to engage, but but the Kremlin's probably not worried about them. There's maybe 30, 40 percent who are pro-war, either very pro-war or mildly, and there'll be a block in the middle who don't know. Look, it's t- it's changing all the time, but usually societies end up like that, um, even even in dictatorships. What would be what would be your your sort of methodology and your strategic aims in, in engaging with them?
2: Well, I mean, my the, the methodology I leave to people that understand how you can communicate and, uh, you t- you know, all, all of different ways that you can penetrate it. And my message to them is you, you want to have a great country. This is undermining you. you. You're making yourself dependent on the Chinese. You're losing people. I mean, some people... Think they lost four more Russian soldiers so far in Ukraine than we lost in the entire Afghan war. Well, fucking tell Russian people about it. And the people that you're going to have access to are obviously people who have Visa or MasterCard or, uh, you know, uh, who, who shop at Amazon. But we have all these names. All right. We got the, the Apple has all the, the the phone numbers and names of these people. Just start causing massive disruption, massive doubt to the extent you can do it. I don't know if it'll work. But, you know, when you're at war, you try everything. You try everything. And and, and that's my thing. So, before I turn it over to Al because I'm dominating your time too much and I apologize. I worked in your country in, I think, 2007 or so. When I worked there, I flew to Kiev and I worked in the Ukraine. All right? Now... You fly to Key and you work in Ukraine. Just give us a, a, a little bit of background on the nomenclature here, because I've, Ann Applebaum was very strong, you don't call it the Ukraine, James, you have to call it Ukraine, and now there's no such thing as KEIV, the place that we studied about in World War II that got overrun by the Germans. Just give us a little bit of a cultural lesson about your country and the language.
1: So the Ukraine versus Ukraine is to do, when you call it the Ukraine, you're kind of saying it's like a, uh, a relational spatial definition. It basically means the edge. So you're saying, it's different from saying like edge is the name of the country or the edge is the name of the country. We're calling it the edge, you're saying it's on the edge of something else. So you're kind of like play, you're like, you're like making it more diminutive, you know, it's a, a place on the edge of Russia, Austro-Hungary, whatever. Um, so that's why the is significant. Um, but a lot of these things, I mean, they're important because of context. And they're important because that's the way imperial powers refer to it. It's that place on the edge. Therefore, it's not a real country. It's just the periphery. So, so it's important not because people fixate on the and they care that much about articles. It's because it's the way that it was referred to uh, within a context by by imperial superpowers who, as you can see, still deny Ukraine, um, its rights to sovereignty and identity. Um, Kiev, Kiev, again, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like Kiev was the spelling um, that was pushed by Moscow. Kiev is the pronunciation in Ukrainian, the spelling in Ukrainian. Again, these things are all about context. In another context, maybe it wouldn't matter that much, but it's all about the history. It's all about understanding context. And, and that's why it's important. Great. Okay,
0: Alvin. I'm sorry. I, I took too, too much of Peter's time. <coughs> no, I would just say, uh, Peter, I I think we have something, at least the beginnings of the of, of of an infrastructure with the voice of America and its parent company. Of course, Trump wrecked it by putting in a you know some kind of a, a political hack. But I, you can build on that. You talked about how effective some of it was during the Cold War. There's no reason it can't be effective again. Uh, and I I just but but I also wonder, Peter, um, that that. I, I think one of the really smart things Biden did was to release the intelligence beforehand. He let everybody know what they were going to do, and then they did it. And that must have rattled
1: Putin a little bit. Um, yeah, it was definitely an innovative step. Um, but yeah, no, I think it was very innovative, and, and it's something we've been pushing for a long time. We're always like, we we always did it. We, as in the community of people who care about this, in the context of corruption, why don't you leak more stuff about yeah. where the dirty money is? Finally, they're doing that, and all this interesting thing, all these interesting things are coming out. Um, it is—I know—it's hard for intelligence agencies to do that, and, and even then, people were super skeptical. You know, journalists were like, "Well, how do? How can we believe you?" They're like, "You got to believe us," and they're like, "Tell us your sources." And they're like, "Of course, we're not going to say say our sources." So it was right. still hard. The thing that I would say, though, just going up and doing that in a press briefing is not enough. So if we had a proper infrastructure, you would have um, the equivalent of, I don't know, online town halls in all the countries of Europe and in Ukraine, where U.S. officials would be doing online presentations in the local languages, communicating with local journalists about it. Just having Jen Psaki or her, her various colleagues brief, you know, the Hall, the Hall. Sorry, the White House (laughs) press corps, that's still very naive. Look, look at it this way. The authoritarians, the Russians, the Chinese, the Saudis, even the bloody Hungarians now, they have their own information war infrastructure. We know what that is. It's lying state propaganda. It's troll farms. It's all this nasty stuff. We have to have our alternative, which is built on completely different values. So they do troll farms, we do online town halls, but in every audience that matters across the world, you know? So that's what, we, that's what I mean. We need to have a whole machine that is doing this with, you know, which is commensurate to our values or the values we claim to have. And, but it is just as targeted, just as focused on different audiences. Even now, Russia is wiping our whatever in the middle east uh rt and their troll farms are completely winning the narrative battle in the middle east this is all nato's fault this whole world is Amer- this whole war is america's fault in the middle east even in central europe in bulgaria in hungary russian or russian proxy media are are doing great damage still working very very hard nobody's working with those, those audiences the same in latin america look this is an international tussle the Russians have got a bloody nose, an informational bloody nose um, in the Western America, partly because Putin didn't tell his inf- infowar people what was about to happen. They couldn't prepare. He didn't tell anyone what was about to happen. He didn't tell the bloody army by the looks of it. So they didn't prepare. They couldn't you know, roll out their campaigns. They will. Yeah. Just because a couple of European countries banned RT doesn't mean the Russians have gone. Democracies are always open. We will always have ways to get information from autocracies into our systems. That's the nature of democracies. Within a few months, Russia will be rolling out a huge campaign talking about Ukrainian atrocities, well-meaning literary magazines will publish stories about how the Ukrainians shelled themselves or something, how this was all NATO's fault. This narrative will return. And in order to engage with it, you will have to engage in a very honest and earnest way with audiences across Europe, across the Middle East. Who's going to do that? Whose job is that? No one's. How, how well do the British do on that, Peter? Um, well, um, at least we have a theory of change, but, but I still don't think we have an infrastructure. Mm. Um, you know, I still don't think there's a kind of – we really need to imagine – what is democratic communication in a in a twenty first century? You know, we, 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 I mean, the Cold War stuff just shows that we know how to do it. We can't just roll out our Cold War models and hope, and hope they're going to work. So, so the British do do think about it. We like to think we're really good at it, and there's certainly talented people. But but I don't think we've really coalesced this. Into, into infrastructure, uh, we'd see it. I mean, this can't be something hidden, you know, this has to be something that just exists like a, I don't know, a USAID that focus on, focuses on communication.
0: Yeah, let me, let me get you, before I turn it back to James, let me get you to put your, your Russian expert hat on for a moment and just two questions. Uh, does Putin face any threat from within or is that just unrealistic? And what's your, what's your realistic good case ending for all this?
1: oh, look, he's miscalculating horribly. So suddenly we're in this new zone where Putin is in this spiral of bad decision-making. And I think James said something very, very powerful there, which is very true. The, the Russian project is bigger than Putin. This is a, a great power with vast history, with a bureaucrat class, with a security class, with classes. You know, this is not a, you know, even though Putin's managed to sort of seal power around himself in many ways, it's still a system that system can just go on strike you know if the bureaucracy just says nope this ain't happening uh, or if the army just says nope this ain't happening then you have this sort of paralysis putin can keep on pressing buttons but the system won't work no we're not at that place yet but but we could get there um if he keeps on miscalculating if 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 the system and there is a system it it is a it's a serious country with you know that depends on a lot of very well educated very very Usually, highly motivated people to do their job, so it can essentially just go on strike. And if he can, continues messing up, we'll be like the late Soviet, Euro, uh, Soviet Union, where people just the system just stops working. Um, Putin's system so far has not been a totalitarian one; it's been an authoritarian kleptocratic one, based on a pyramid of mutually reinforcing corrupt self-interests, from the traffic cop through to the minister. That's disappeared. There's no money left to do that through. You were meant to do ideology once a week, say, oh, I believe in the ideology, and then you go and live your personal life and make your money. That was the system. After 2014, it got a little bit less profitable for everyone, but it was still pretty much working. What he's gone and done is set fire to the whole of that system. In his head, he wants to do Stalin 2.0. He wanted to switch to a totalitarian dictatorship. Does he have the repressive muscle to do that? I don't know. Um, these kind of security guys that he's created around himself, they're kind of cosplaying Beria, Stalin's head of the KGB. Whether they can do Beria, whether they can arrest tens, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, whether they can build prisons to house them, unclear. So, you know, in his head, that's what he wants to do. His rhetoric is a clearly totalitarian rhetoric. Just now he's been on Russian TV saying he's going to purge and cleanse the nation of vermin. That's anyone who disagrees with him. So he's using totalitarian language, which is getting ready for sort of mass repressions. But again, he might press a button and the system is so corrupt, it's so incompetent that maybe not what he thinks it will do won't happen. So, so Peter
2: let's talk a little raw politics here and I'm going back it was some time ago probably 14 years ago 15 years ago that I've worked in Ukraine but the the, the general rule of Ukrainian politics is the further west you go the more anti-russian you are I, I know that's exceptions to every rule but they have a democracy and the western part of the country is clearly looks more to the west so he's annexed Crimea which was a voting stronghold for the, for the he's called in the party of regions when i was there or you annexed donbass which is the real stronghold of the pro-russian party so i don't know how he lets ukrainian democracy back because if he was a republican he would have gotten rid of texas and utah right <laughs> I, I mean he, he's really diminished and he and, and they had a lot of influence in ukrainian politics back then and in, in uh, you know, up up until the, the corruption, but the more that he gobbles up from the east, the more anti-Russian Ukrainian politics becomes. Does that 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 analysis make sense to you?
1: Completely. I mean, and 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 again, that's why very many people didn't expect this war to happen because he's actually undermining the kind of the more subtle uh, control he could have had over Ukraine, manipulating its politics. And look, James, there's a there's a separate reality where. A flourishing, successful Russia is so attractive that many Ukrainians want to be part of it. The fact is, like, at some level, despite Putin's image of himself as the greatest Russian leader since Peter the Great, probably, in his own mind, he's created a model that every country around wants to run away from, even Central Asian states, um, who, which are, you know, brutal dictatorships in some cases. So so there's a kind of a like a personal offense going on, you know, like I'm gonna how dare they choose something else. Um but listen, you know, everything that Putin does in many ways actually shortens the life of the Russian Empire. You know, he, he has he gets these sort of short-term wins, but in the long term, everything he does pushes Ukrainians, Georgians, Belarusians away. Um, but again, you know he's um you know maybe he doesn't look that far into the future maybe this is a man who thinks in much more uh in much more uh sort of tactical and short-term ways
2: so before i turn it over to Al, a lot of people have i, I don't because of work there. As you, you know, that part of the world, James, they're just going back and forth, and a lot of the Ukraine, they speak Russian, and it, you, you know, is that a, a real country like Italy is a real country or Kenya's a or whatever? Give us a, a quick lesson on why Ukraine is a real country with a real culture and real interest that deserves to be heard on the world stage.
1: Well, look, I can give you, a, I can give you a history lesson. You know, go back to to Byron, uh, who's already writing about Ukraine as this incredibly like romantic notion, same as he's writing about Greece. You know, during this great, you know, romantic period where you where you celebrate uh, um, the emergence of nations as this romantic ideal. Byron goes off and dies for Greece, but at the same time writes one of his most famous uh, long poems about Mazepa, about you know an early Ukrainian leader trying to free Ukraine. From, 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 from imperial powers. So, you know, as long as we've had ideas of nations, Ukraine has been one of those ideas. Okay. Okay. So right. as Very an good. idea, it's, it's, it's existed, you know, since that period at least, which is when you, you know, European ideas of nations are formed. But listen, you know, sod that history lesson. I mean, anyone can look that up in Wikipedia. The, the great scholar of, of what is a nation, uh, Benedict Anderson, comes up with this idea of a nation as an imagined community. He had a very, very quick rule of whether a nation exists or not. And that's if our people are prepared to die for it. And I think Ukrainians have answered that question pretty strongly. They've actually answered it many times in their history, but now we can all see it and can't run away from that. And um, the question is, not is Ukraine a real country? The question is, is Russia a real country? Russia is actually a hodgepodge of, of different statelets and, and republics. It's, uh, it still thinks of itself as an empire. And whether people are prepared to die for the Russian idea, whether people are prepared to die for this idea that Putin has, that Ukraine is not a real country, that all is part of one great folk, one great Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian people, he uses language straight out of the Nazi nomenclature. Are people prepared to die for that? Putin is hiding this war from his own people. He's saying there are no casualties. If you say the word war, you get 12 years in prison for saying the word war. That doesn't speak to a country in the sense of an imagined community where people are prepared to die for its mission and its idea. So the question isn't, is Ukraine a real country? The question is, does Russia really exist? Yeah, brilliant. I'll Peter, you have, been, you
0: have been you um, have uh, been just a brilliant a, a, a terrific guest. I can't thank you. And I hope now that you're in Washington for at least a while, I hope some of those American officials, I hope you're already spending time talking to them about how we can engage in a much more robust and effective uh, uh, information campaign than we have in the past, because, as you say, it's absolutely critical.
2: Wow, man, I, I, I just I, I loved the way. That you pose a question? It's not the question, is Ukraine a real country? Is Russia a real country? I mean, that that's thats some deaf footwork there, boy. I can tell you right now. That's, <laughs> that's, some, real, that's some real
1: footwork I really, I, I really, really admire. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm putting that on my wall. <laughs> all
2: right, all right, exactly. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I hope to run into you again.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine. Bye-bye.
0: widely agreed that the global order changed dramatically February 24th when the Russians invaded Ukraine, a sovereign country. It's also going to change American politics, in sig- I think in significant if uncertain ways. For the Democrats, there's going to be a demand for a lot higher defense spending, including more for nuclear, stationing more forces in Europe. That's going to create schisms that there will be less money for their domestic priorities. For Republicans, the specter of Trump and his, his, his warm relationship with Putin isn't going to go away. And there are elements of conservatives that are attracted to authoritarians, especially those who run white, culturally conservative countries. So I, 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 I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Just, just a note and aside, from 1948 to 1988, a central question in every presidential election was national security. From 1992 through, 19, through 2020, it was really not a primary issue. That may change.
2: Well, the number of Democrats that like want lower defense spending or you know, want to cut back on, on overseas deployment is relatively small and not that particularly influential, right? The number of Republicans that admire authoritarianism, that admire ethno-nationalism, is actually a pretty significant part of their party. And also, you know, what's really changed, and remember, according to none other than John Bolton, and you can listen to the tape, uh, NATO is very popular now. And it's going to continue to be popular. There are very few anti-NATO Democrats. There are a huge number of prominent, including Donald J. Trump being the most, that are anti-NATO. Now, again, my whole take on the squad is they're not evil. They're sil- They're profoundly silly people. The Democratic Socialists of America came out with a, a no sanctions. Thing now, who the hell knows who the Democratic Socialists of America are? You know, a couple of rich old lady donors, and that's about it. But but these people are, are, are profoundly naive and profoundly silly. There's a difference between being naive and silly, and being evil nationalistic authoritarian all of that stuff so you know yeah we got to deal with our silly caucus they got to deal with their evil caucus
0: yeah i think they i surely agree with you on the problems they have i think democrat problems will be a little bit bigger than that because you're right there's only a small group that wants to cut the the cut defense funding. We're not going to be talking about cutting defense funding. We're going to be talking about big increases, and those big increases are going to just inevitably take money away from some domestic programs. The Democrats had a basic deal: for every dollar you add to defense, you add a dollar to the, to domestic spending. I don't think that'll fly any longer. And uh, it's not that I don't wish it would, but I think that's what's going to happen. So it's, you know, we'll see how they navigate. I, I, it. I,
2: yeah. But, uh, it, it, it should be a bigger problem, a much bigger problem for them
0: than for Democrats. Much. Well, you're right, and the specter of Trump is not going to go away, uh, no. and, and they and don't can't want to displease
2: stupid mouth.
0: And, and you mentioned NATO. It was also John Bolton, you know, who said he wanted to get out of NATO in the second term. That's what Putin thought. Uh, and right. Fiona Hill, who we're going to have on this show in a couple of weeks, said it was the Trump White House but, that emboldened. Putin. So the the notion that some of these right wingers are trying to spin while still defending Trump wouldn't have happened if Trump was there. Nonsense.
2: It would have been a goddamn disaster if Trump had been there. All all you have to do is listen to what Trump has said about NATO. If you don't trust John Bolton, you know, you think Fiona Hill is a part of the deep state. The videos of Trump saying he wanted to get out of NATO, the videos of Trump saying it's obsolete, the videos of Trump not knowing what even the hell NATO was. So, it's not just that Bolton says that. You, you, there's ample, overwhelming evidence of Trump coming out of his own mouth. Yeah, and I, I didn't watch Fox
0: News this week. I, I paid my penance last week. Uh, but last week, it was this remarkable dichotomy where they said, let's get tougher on Putin, and then the next sentence, they praise Trump. Uh, those are inherently contradictory. And I also suspect we're going to find out more about what Trump did uh, to embolden, oh. embolden Putin and uh, and and discourage the uh, discourage the Ukrainians.
2: I, I, I still think there's a P tape. Well. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I'm just telling no, I I, no. I'm, I'm not laughing
0: at what you're it? saying. I'm just laughing at the prospects. Yeah.
2: I, if there is, I'm not sure I want to watch it. But uh, uh, well, I'm not sure I want to watch a, it either. But. I, I, it, 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 there is clearly any uh, compromise. I think they call it in Russia. There's compromise. everywhere. maybe tape, maybe it's you know. It's probably ten different things they have. You know,
0: I mean, we shouldn't forget that his campaign manager was the uh, was the chief consultant and uh, paid a whole bunch of money by the pro-Russian Ukrainians uh, to try to defeat uh, wasn't Zelensky, but to try to defeat people right. before the, like that. And uh,
2: was then called the Party of Regions.
0: Right. So uh, right. anyway, that's that's where we are. Okay, we'll be back to this. All right, James, now for those really good questions from our listeners. The first is from Eileen in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Eileen, I used to live there. I want you to go up to Luella Court uh, and wave to my homestead from many years ago. But, James, she has a good question. She says Donald Trump has a huge war chest. I believe it's over 100 million. I'm not sure that figure's right, but it's close. It's still coming in. I don't think he's going to share it with fellow Republicans. Donald's not in the sharing. Can he use that to pay his attorneys? If he doesn't run for president in 2024, who gets that money? Or does he use it
2: as his personal piggy bank? You know, I'm, I'm going to refrain because, I, 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 you know, what I do is I pick up the phone and call the an FEC lawyer. But I think he can pay legal fees with it. Mm-hmm. I, I think you can convert it to cash if you pay taxes on it. I, I think the 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 law, you know, I don't know which pool he's raising it in. Some of it could be in a pack pool, some of it can be in a campaign real leg pool. So I'm, I'm, your question is a good one. Maybe we have some lawyers out there who can give a, a, a better answer than I would. But in this instance, I would just pick up the phone and call a lawyer. Well, ca- or, or, or call
0: our friend that. Fred Wertheimer, who would know.
2: Yeah, yeah Fred would know. Fred Wertheimer, exactly. if you're listening, yeah. tell us, and we'll report next week yeah. what you said. And, and yeah, just just tell us what 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 the law is and what Trump can or can't do. Yeah, Fred is both a lawyer and a and a campaign finance expert. So we'll we'll, we'll Fred, you yeah, tune in and we'll 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 defer to answer till we get the expert in the booth.
0: But we'll let you know. I promise, Eileen, uh, and right. uh, I still love Wayne, Pennsylvania. Shane in Minneapolis says, considering the state of American politics today, if you could go back and magically change one thing that would make a difference, what would it be? I, I'm sorry, I'm going to do two things. I do two Supreme Court decisions. I would, I would do – I mean two of the worst Supreme Court decisions since Dred Scott uh, or maybe. I mean they just were awful. Uh, and one was Citizens United, which just opened the special interest money – Spickets, and the other was shelby county which just made voter suppression easier and it, it was the beginning of rolling back rights which our great guest ron brownstein talked about last week so if i could i would uh, i would get rid of those two court decisions there are other things i'd like to do but those would be big
2: you know you answered it first i was thinking what i wanted to add to it and i i i, I, I think your answer is a hundred percent right i think these two supreme court decisions have just staggeringly undermined American democracy. And and none of them were grounded in very much... It's not like these guys, like, read a law book and look at press. They just said, how is it that we can protect and expand corporate power to any extent necessary? And both of those are really about the expansion of corporate power. And that's what's at the bottom of all this. I, I, I don't. I don't know if they like even inherently racist. I think that they know that that the more people vote, uh, uh, particularly the more uh, black people that vote, the worse it is for corporate power. I think that is for most of them the, the altar they worship on, and we're paying the price for it. Yeah.
0: No, I agree. Uh, one more, Jeff in Marin County, California. We both love Marin oh. County, California. He is, good question for you, James. He's wondering how Governor Yunkin is doing in the state of my childhood, Virginia. It was my childhood, too, uh, before I went to Pennsylvania. He said um, Jeff was a little surprised to see his approval rating is not so good. Every policy proposal he ran on, uh, Jeff says, is being rejected. Can you tell us about that and reflect for a moment how do people get elected when a clear majority of voters reject what they're selling? And as a PS, Jeff says, thanks for the Blinkist discount. All the books I'm reading are done in minutes now. Good
2: for you, Jeff. Anyway, James on Yunkin. Well, uh, first of all, you can tell that he's a smart guy because his wink, kiss habits, and, and his question. And, and it's a good question because, you know, he was the guy in the vest and mm-hmm. was, was the the kind of good good Republican unlike Trump. He was cool, and uh, people started to see this for what he was. He ran on unpopular proposals. Uh, Terry just got caught up with a a lot of left wing craziness that he had nothing to do with and just a kind of bad cycle and, you know, bad presidential approval numbers. I, I think that the Republicans are vesting a lot of hope of McCormick in Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, different people you can see the guy running in Ohio. Uh, this kind of hedge fund, private equity, uh, yeah, I like Trump, but I, I, I dress better than he does, and I, I'm not as uncouth as he is. I, I don't think that's going to be a sustainable model over a period of time, but it certainly is a sustainable model right now.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, there, there was a survey out this week. I don't. I find the numbers hard to believe that, that it wasn't uh, the parents, uh, the teachers' issues that uh, hurt Terry McAuliffe as much as there a huge turnout among people,
2: older voters. Uh, and that well, went against him. And I I'm- Rockingham County, which, as you know, because you went to my daughter's wedding, Shenandoah County, yeah. the, the county right south of Shenandoah is Rockingham. Right? It, you got to take out the city of Harrisburg because it's Harrisonburg because it's an independent city. They had a higher turnout in two thousand twenty-one than they had in two thousand twenty, right. without Trump on the ballot. What was it you think? I I think it. I'll be honest with you. I said it on, on your wife's show the, the day after the election. I think it was all this woke crap that just people would just, it, it stimulated. Yeah. But, but we, we could go on and on.
0: Okay, here's a question, James, from um, uh, Paul in San Antonio, Texas, who says that he's a very big fan and never misses an episode. That's great, Paul. Yeah, you're, you're in our A-list now. Uh, but he, he also loves Magic spoons, so that's two for two. Wow. He asked, what, what do you think of, of, of Rui Shera, who was a guest about a year or so ago on this show, one of the authors of the emerging Democratic
2: majority who thinks the cultural left puts a ceiling on Democratic support? You know, first of all, it's Bear County, Texas, and it's spelled B-E-X-A-R, but as I recall from my time in Texas, it's pronounced like the Bale of bears. I think really Teixeira is, if I, if I had to pick, I don't know, five smartest observers of American politics of my time, there's no doubt that really would be on A, probably would be higher than number five. Uh, and I think the emerging Democratic majority has been somewhat misconstrued. Uh, I, I also like uh, John B. Judas until he became an unwitting. Stooge of the Russians, but I think he's seen the error of his ways. Uh, I think he's a very bright guy. But uh, Rui has been on the show. Uh, I, I, if I were in a political foxhole, I, I, no one I'd rather have on my side than Rui.
0: Next question, James, from Mary in Illinois. Yeah. Mary, I wish you would have oh, told us. In Mary in Illinois. Illinois. A big state. Yeah, James married a, a Mary yeah. from Illinois. Uh, right. We could compare notes. She asked, do you think Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine will have any effects on the way we plan? uh, uh, they plan to interfere in our 2022 elections? Mary, the one thing I will assure you, they plan to interfere in our 2022 elections because that's what they do. That's what they always do. Weren't very effective in 2020. I think we're a lot more prepared for it. And uh, uh, now that Trump is gone, maybe the Republicans will help Democrats and rise to the occasion to try to prevent them from doing so.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, they'll try everything. The truth of the matter is, is you know, it, it, it's relatively early in this. They've been hurt. I mean, they, they, we all had, and I talked about this earlier, we had erroneous, and let's face it, we all did, we believed that there was a way that everybody could make money and that they would get a taste of freedom and and that was almost i i i know very few uh voices that were against this and i concede that but they are being exposed is not even they don't have a second-rate army they have a third-rate army i mean they can't do the basic stuff that armies do I, i mean the, the army of the Potomac in the Civil War was better logistically than than the modern Russian army. They, they can't do crap. I mean, it's just amazing when you see how many people they lose, how their supply lines are all jammed, how inept they are, how small their economy is. I, I mean, it, uh, hopefully all this exposes something, and in, in I, I hope the Russian people start to see it. They've been massively ill-served whatever, political leadership, massively. Months and months to prepare for this,
0: and their logistics are a total failure. Oh. I mean, that's, that's, that's just incredible. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> as Peter said, the question may be, is Russia uh, a real country? Right, now? right.
2: right. We've asking ourselves some, some real questions. I mean, you and I, we grow up obsessed with Russia and, you know, and everything, and it's just exposed itself to who wears a Russian watch? Who drives a Russian car? Who wears Russian jeans? I don't, drink, Russian I don't even
0: drink vodka, so I don't even drink Russian. Vodka, I'm a gin you know? person,
2: so so. <laughs> and and that whole thing, I don't, it, it's, it's no sacrifice. By the way, soviet is not even made in Russia. two like, percent of all of vodka consumed in the United States is Russian made. I mean, they they're actually a half-assed, broke dick country that's getting exposed. Well, it's not much different than John
0: McCain, who described them as a gas station right. masquerading as a country. Well, uh, he knew. I'll give Senator McCain that credit. That was dismissed, missed by a lot of people, but it's uh, it looks more and more the case now. Final questions from uh, uh, from Martin in Raleigh, North Carolina. James, you're gonna like this one. All right, uh, and I love we Raleigh. love Raleigh. Is it possible that the anticipated details to be revealed by the January 6th Commission will affect the ongoing Justice Department cases of those involved?
2: Yes. yes. Okay, it just, it just is. They, 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 they're they going to come forward with so much stuff that even us in our, like, creative mind, thinking how crazy they are, they, they're going to exceed expectations. And, I mean, they've already come up uh, with, with the Justice Department. I mean, look to their credit. I mean, they've already come up. We found out they had wep- weapons cash and Northern Virginia ready to invade it. We, every time you, you turn the computer, you become a nest side because you just keep seeing... Different things, but when it's put together, and and I have some hope that this committee and i again a propaganda. Okay, let's don't use that word. I hope that PR and the ability to roll out a story is consummate to the information that they found because this is I I I, I don't know if I don't think it's going to persuade pro-russian r- republicans anything because if putin doesn't drive you away nothing is going to drive you away then there's more of these people they not like to hope but there's some people out there that are open to information that think that putin is is an evil bad person and well, uh, and they
0: and they may find out to those who don't know already that trump is also uh-huh. all right next week uh, those questions keep them coming absolutely absolutely
2: and, you know let's think of things we can do to internally in russia to undermine these people we got we we, we got to open a multi front war here
0: All right, and now for the outrage of the week. James, we've been semi-defensive about Joe Manchin, who some of our audience really doesn't like. We've noted he represents a very conservative, cold dependent state. Uh, but no longer for me, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm off uh, any uh, mansion bandwagon, and not just because he scrolled during President Zelensky's speech to a joint session, that was just distasteful. Far more serious was when he killed the nomination of an eminently qualified Sarah Bloom Raskin for the Federal Reserve Board, charging she would prioritize climate change over fighting inflation. Senator, this was a nomination for the Federal Reserve, not the EPA. Raskin previously served on the Fed board, was deputy treasury secretary, and her nomination was praised by people like Fed Chairman Alan Blinder and Janet Yellen, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, who know a hell of a lot more about monetary policy and inflation than Joe Manchin. The West Virginia Democrat always looks out for his political and personal interests, which makes me wonder— what was his real motive here? There's a call for some good investigative reporting on this. Joe Manchin, you've lost me.
2: Well, okay, I, 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 I admit that I'm, I defended uh, Senator Manchin. I'll probably do to some degree. I, I, I think some of the things that he's done, I, I I would call disappointing, but not totally out of character. All right, he is a kind of, uh, you know, plus 70 West Virginia Democrat, who's a little bit of a curmudgeon and has a little different worldview. Yeah, yeah, than yeah, yeah, James, I'd give I, him
0: that on Cole, but not on Sarah Raskin,
2: not in the Fed. I mean, he's just, I, I, somebody I, got you to You know, him. again, uh, again they, they could be other things. It's not sort of totally out of character that he would be against it. I'm, oh, I think I it is. I disagree with it. I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm everything I know, uh, this, this person would have been an excellent thing. But the one that You just can't top his Christian cinema. So she ran as a Democrat in 2018. Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns in your book report that she's going to Republican lobbyist fundraisers in making fun of President Biden in praising Kevin McCarthy in Andy Biggs and describing herself as an anti-government, anti-tax senator. Well, why didn't you tell us then? All right. I mean, Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Manchin sort of told you who he was. It could be disappointing. It could be this, it could be that. But it's not totally shocking. I can't wait to raise money for Ruben Gallego in 2024. I just cannot wait. And I can't wait for her to answer Is Well, if this is who you are, why why didn't you tell us when you ran? It would have been nice to know this. And... This is like Andy Biggs is as crazy as any of the crazies they have over there. McCarthy is a pathetic character in modern American politics. I mean, what are you talking about? And, and if, if you favor low corporate taxation, why didn't you tell us and, and run? What, what's your position on the Rick Scott thing? I'm, maybe you're for it. I have no idea. It would be totally fitting with your current philosophy that you're now telling us about. That, that's my issue. We always kind of knew who Mansion was. She never told us who she was.
0: Well, I agree with you in cinnamon. Boy, you're letting Manchin off the hook. I'm sorry. He didn't well, tell I'm us. Not- he, wait a minute. Let me finish. He didn't tell us he was going to vote against Sarah Raskin. He didn't do that for coal. Cole didn't have anything to do that. He did that for financial interest somewhere. And all I'm saying is I'd like some good investigative reporters at the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or so to pursue that. This was, a, this was, a, this was an eminently qualified woman uh, who has been endorsed by, by you know the people who really know the issue. And suddenly Joe Manchin pipes up and says he's against her for climate change change that does and, not
2: that i'm sorry that doesn't compute I, I, i'm not again i'm not understanding i don't know but but he he didn't make fun of president biden and praise andy biggs in no he didn't do that With, with kevin mccarthy well, I, I, i'm just saying you know this is like a little bit of kind of what we knew he he he, this is unbelievable what she did but at any rate they both they
0: they both had bad weeks uh anyway okay Hey, thanks for listening to politics war room with james carvel and i'm al hunt don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politics at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon now following this episode we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors chili sleep smith ai and hello fresh in the show notes we thank you for supporting them when you do it helps make this podcast happen To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.